The reading is taken from Genesis, chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. for reading and good afternoon everyone thanks for coming along tonight and I'm grateful for the invitation to be here for those who don't spend their days uh, in these buildings it's quite a treat uh, to come down into the uh, into this part of the world well I have to confess I haven't found it easy to pre- uh, preparing to speak on this familiar bit of the Bible the story of Noah several attempts uh, at how to approach it ended up uh, in the bin scrunched up uh, or at least around the bin you know when a pile of paper goes in that general direction I don't know if you've had a similar experience yourself, uh, perhaps with work, uh, where you get to a point and you just have to scrunch up what you're doing and start again. Maybe a picture or a painting that gradually looks so unlike the thing it's supposed to look look like, uh, it joins the pile of rejected scrap. Maybe the journey when you finally get so lost that you begin to retrace your steps and have another go. Sometimes things go so badly wrong uh, that all you can do is abandon them Uh, chuck them out and start again. I wonder whether in these buildings around us over the years there haven't been people who've wished they had that ability uh, to go back in time and have another go at various things. But that in essence is the situation here in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis is a book as you may know all about God's determination to fill his creation with his people. It's a relational book about a relational God who wants to know his people and wants his people to know him too. And yet virtually right from the start, that plan hits some serious problems. Indeed, the problem is so serious 
that by the time we get here, just six chapters in, it has got to that scrunch it up, chuck it away, scrub it out, and start again stage. Uh, Which means even as we start, we need to realise that this story of Noah is not, after all, a happy children's story that we're going to be thinking about over the next few lunchtimes. That's generally the category it fits in, isn't it, in most people's mind. We think of Noah, we think, oh yes, the ark, the dove, the animals, two by two, uh, the rainbow, and it makes us smile. Whereas in reality, this is a story about something so horrific that God would look at this world and scrunch it up and chuck it away and start again. And so there's the health warning, I think particularly today. I'm almost tempted to apologise for some of the subject matter we're going to look at. It's fairly bleak. But of course we need to hear the hard message, don't we? Um, If we're ever going to understand the solution that Christianity is truly offering. So here we see some fundamental truths about God, about us, and about his world. Um, Firstly, this lunchtime, we see that humanity has ruined God's creation. Humanity has ruined God's creation. We see that in these verses. Uh, As we pick up the story in Genesis 6, verse 1 tells us that man is multiplying on the face of the earth. Uh, So far, so good. This was part of God's plan. But it's verse 5 that tells us of the nature and depth of the problem. And here's the first surprise, perhaps. It's not the water that ruins creation in this story. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. God looks down at his creation, and what does he see? That verse could hardly be more comprehensive, could it? Man's wickedness, man's evil, is great in the earth. It's vast, it's serious. And and surely we can relate to that, can't we? If you were to grab an alien and and sit them down in front of the news on pretty much any day of any year and say, learn about humanity, would they not conclude the wickedness of the human race is great in the earth? Someone might object, of course, that is is to pick the worst. Uh, There are lots of bad stories out there, but most of the time, most people are beautiful on the inside. Or as Ben Elton said, I believe in the fundamental goodness of humankind, despite all the evidence to the contrary. But then the verse continues. Now, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil. Here we are at the deepest possible level, not a superficial judgment. The deepest level in the heart, the source of all our desires and ideas and, uh, and decisions, Every single inclination is only evil. And then for the avoidance of of doubt, we get that word continually thrown in as well. Every thought, only evil, all of the time. I don't know what you make of that assessment. It feels quite sweeping, doesn't it? Uh, My natural reaction is to get defensive, I think. I want to say, well, no one's perfect, sure, but no one's this bad. We might lie from time to time, but most of the time we tell the truth. Uh, Surely that's a good moment. Uh, Even on the way here today, I see people giving up their seat on the tube. There's a good moment. People working hard, moments of sacrifice. Surely this doesn't describe the world that we live in. Surely it doesn't describe us. But the fact is, it does. Uh, Left to ourselves, this is what we're like. And I think if we're ever to understand that or, or accept this assessment, 
We need to understand how the Bible talks about good and evil. And it's slightly different to to how our our world thinks about good and evil. You see, this description of, of wickedness and of sin that has so filled the earth, it can be traced all the way back to one original act of rebellion. Just three chapters earlier, Adam and Eve in the garden, who do something so fundamental that it shapes everything that follows. They reject God's authority over them. They're not content to live under his rule and his provision. And in effect, in effect, what they did and what all humanity afterwards carries on, it is a turning away. So that whereas we are supposed to live life facing God, as it were, if God were somehow over there, what humanity has done is, is a 180. And we turn our back to God and we say, we're going to live life facing this way. And of course, as we do that, there's a whole spectrum. There's, there's evil acts, there's, there's acts of apparent goodness and kindness. But the fact is, every act done bears the label, done with my back turned to God. It may not have every characteristic of evil, but it has the worst characteristic of evil, done in defiance of God. And that tarnishes everything. So as God looks at the world here, he sees backs. That is what we're like, left to ourselves. And did you notice here, that is so serious, that turning away, that that it affects the whole of creation. So in verses 11 and 12, we read, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. It seems that relationship between Man and God was so central, so essential to how creation was supposed to function that that once it's gone, once it's broken, the whole of creation begins to unravel. So God looks down and sees a ruined creation because of humanity's sin. Now I'm aware it's very unfashionable and outdated to talk about sin. Uh, Certainly in our culture today, sin is is harmless, isn't it? Uh, It's a Victorian concept that we don't really need anymore. In fact, I'd say our, our culture thinks the bigger problem is people like me who still bother to talk about it, and if only we could be shut up somehow. But the Bible takes a very different approach. Now, we think sin is a superficial thing, it's like a scratch or a dent on a car, and it doesn't really matter. The Bible says sin is much more like taking the steering column out of a car, rendering it dangerous and destabilised. Humanity's sin has ruined creation The second thing that's so vivid in these verses, though, is the fact that humanity, therefore, has broken God's heart. Humanity's broken God's heart. Do you notice God's reaction to what he sees? As there in verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I'll wipe away from the face of the earth the human race I've created. That expression in In verse 6, his heart was deeply troubled. In the original Hebrew, that is a phrase that's used to convey the strongest possible emotions. And we see that when we notice how else it's used in the Bible, how else it's used in the Old Testament. So it's later used to describe how two brothers feel when they learn that their sister has been raped. You can imagine that emotion. It's used of King David when he finds out that his son has died. It's used... Of, uh, to describe how a wife feels when she is abandoned by her husband for another woman. You sense the, the raw emotion of those situations. And then bring that back here to 
Genesis 6. That is the feeling God has as he surveys the damage. I can vividly remember when I was, when I was eight years old, um, our family home was broken into and ransacked. We were away for the Easter weekend. And when we came back and we walked into the house, I can remember my mum's reaction. Uh, room after room, in which the contents of every drawer had been emptied onto the floor. Uh, stuff had gone, TVs, jewellery, things had been smashed and broken. And when my brother and I got to our bedroom, uh, coup de grace in some ways, they had vomited in the middle of the floor of our bedroom. If you can begin to imagine that sense of uh, intrusion and horror, maybe we're getting somewhere close to what God feels as he looks at his world and sees it so ruined. And again, I think this is a corrective to the way we think about sin. I think often people think of God as a faraway headmaster who has his book of school rules and he wants us all to obey. The problem with that, of course, is there's nothing personal about school rules. A headmaster might roll his eyes as he hears about a a boy caught smoking in the toilets again. But he won't feel personally aggrieved. God is not an aloof, faraway lawgiver. He's intimately interested and involved in his creation. And so sin is personal and it breaks his heart. I met someone recently who's going through a divorce because his wife routinely cheated on him. Uh, Twice it happened. Uh, Twice he found it within himself to forgive her and, and try again. But then one day he was walking past a restaurant and through the window he saw his wife with the same man, a third betrayal. And at that point he didn't get a copy of their marriage vows out and say, I think this is a, a breach of the rules. No, he said he felt physically sick and his heart was broken. Sin is not ultimately about breaking rules. It is about a personal rejection of a loving God. And so here's the third thing we see, humanity having broken God's heart. God resolves to ruin the ruined creation. Verse 7 again. So the Lord said, I'll wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Isn't that a shocking verse? I will wipe away. Here is God getting to that scrunch it up, chuck it out, start again, stage. Only it's not a piece of paper, it's the world. It's people. And this is why I say that the essence of this story, uh, we miss the essence of this story when we reduce it to a cosy, cosy Sunday school or kid's tale about a man with an ark. I think we like the story of Noah because we make one huge assumption. Uh, we assume, as we hear it, that we are Noah in the story. Or at least we assume assume that we're part of his family, that if we'd been there, we would have had a a room on the ark with our our name engraved on the door. And so the story is safe. But we're not Noah. We are the rest of humanity. We're the other 99.9999% about to be flushed down the drain. I wonder if this fits with your picture of who God is. Do you think God is being harsh here? There's something we lose in our English translations which I think is important to reinforce how how just and appropriate God's decision is here. If you look at verse 11, that word that's translated corrupt, which comes again in verse 12 twice, is the same word that God uses in verse 13 
when he says he will destroy the earth. Allow me to read it through, using the one word all the way through to make it clear what I'm saying. So from verse 11, we could read, The earth was destroyed in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw how destroyed the earth had become, for all the people on earth had destroyed their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to destroy both them and the earth. Do you see the difference? In other words, God is simply finishing off what humanity has already done. And that's why I say God resolves to ruin a ruined creation. This is a proportional and appropriate response. So my friend going through a divorce, for example, he insists on divorce, but is it he who ruins the marriage? Or no? God is merely resolving to finish the damage that we have already inflicted. Well, thank you for sticking with me up to this point. I, I do wonder when I think, talk about these things whether it would be an empty room by this stage. But can I say also, if this is the first you've ever heard of Christianity, um, or if you're just here investigating Christianity, please don't let this be the only thing you hear. Uh, there's no point in hearing the difficult diagnosis if you don't also uh, hear about the cure. So do come back over the coming weeks and, and you can see on the term card what's coming up um, this term. But even here, there is a glimmer of hope, isn't there? Verse 8, but Noah. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Here is a glimmer of hope. One man who still has that relationship uh, with God. And Noah finds favour, that sweet word favour that shines so brightly in this passage. Uh, is the word for grace, undeserved kindness from God. So is the world beyond repair? Well, if you read through the Bible story, at several points it looks like it is beyond repair. It should end, really. It should end in chapter 3 of Genesis on a strict justice approach. It should end here. It should end in chapter 11 if you read on in Genesis. Humanity deserves to be snuffed out at several points. And yet as the Bible unfolds, you see again and again that God's grace keeps the story going. The world is beyond repair unless God intervenes with grace and kindness. Let me personalise that if I may. You and I, our friends and family and colleagues, we are in a desperate predicament unless God intervenes with grace and undeserved kindness. And we'll see more of that over the next few weeks. But we won't ever stop to look for his grace. We won't ever think that we need it. Unless we take on this difficult message in chapters like this one. This shockingly realistic portrait of what sin is. A creation ruining act of rebellion. Which breaks God's heart. Which deserves God's justice. But it leaves us longing for grace. Shall I close in prayer? Our Father, we thank you for the honesty of uh, chapters like this one, which tell us of the predicament that we are in in our world. We thank you for that glimmer of grace in this chapter, which uh, grows brighter and brighter through the Bible story. We thank you that we can depend on you to be kind and generous to us in ways we don't deserve. And we pray you'd help us and give us that humility 
to cry out to you for that grace. In Jesus' name, amen.